This is episode 25 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. In this episode, we're going back to the 2007 Annual Enrichment Conference, Living in Covenant Community Centered on the Gospel. This is session two with Jeff Vanderstelt. Well, it's a privilege being with you this morning, and uh, uh, my wife is sitting in the front row. This is our 14th uh, anniversary today, 14 years, so... <clears throat> So it's a, so she is a gracious woman. All the women in the room are going like, what in the world are you guys doing here? And um, <clears throat> she believes in this as much as I do and believes in the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he has chosen to call people to himself to declare it in all ways. <clears throat> and as we uh, talk this morning, I want to share something uh, to start with that I hope will will help us begin to have a, a, a clearer picture of not just the means of the gospel, but the purpose of the gospel. And so I want to I pray with us before we do that, because I believe that as we begin, that uh, nothing I say will have any deep and lasting impact in you unless it is the Spirit of God that applies it to your heart, and unless it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you want to lift up and exalt in all that you do. And so let's ask Him to do that. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that you love us more than we ever dared dream or or hope. And that even though we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, we are still accepted because of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We ask that this morning the gospel of Jesus would grip us even more fully. That we wouldn't be people who merely proclaim good news, but that you would grip us with the good news and you would make us into bearers of good news. Father, I pray that your spirit would pierce our hearts with truth and that as you promised you would do, you would lead us into all righteousness, that you'd convict us of sin, that you would guide us in your ways and that you would transform us. Father, I pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. We ask that in all things, he would be the one who receives the praise and glory and that you would have your way with us this morning. Father, I pray that you would direct my thoughts so that they would represent yours, and that the words that come out of my mouth would not be my own, and any that are, God, I pray that they would fall on deaf ears, and any that are of you, I pray that they would pierce the heart, and you would have your way with us this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um... I believe that there, the gospel, in terms of the way in which we need to begin to perceive it, if you haven't done it yet, is that we need to continue to understand that God has done all the work necessary in Christ Jesus to save us and to renew us and to restore us to what he intended us to be. Often that's what I would call the means of the gospel. We know it often in, in Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, and it's, we, we read it like this. For it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And for many of us, uh, if we're not careful, we believe that that's the end of it. And we have primarily the means of the gospel by which people are saved, and we've forgotten the purpose of the gospel. See, the means of the gospel is that God does it, and he did it through Christ. And there is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. And we know that and we believe it and we we better preach that. And it better come through everything we preach and everything we do. 
But if we, if we for some reason stop there, then we miss the purpose of the gospel. Because it goes on, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created. Now again, I hope you hear that. We are God's workmanship. That's again the means. God did it. It's His work, not ours. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, the means by which God saves us in Christ. It's His work. But listen, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And we understand that is the gospel too. See, the gospel is not simply what God has done to restore us back to himself, but what the reason for which God would restore us is so that we would be a picture of what God is like to the world only because of the work of Christ, so that the world might know who God is and he might receive glory in all things. See, that's the, 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 the message of Ephesians is Paul is saying, do you understand this creation picture? It's not just a, a time here and now. God has a grand plan. And that grand plan is that even before the creation of the world, he foreordained, he determined that there would be a way in which he would receive glory in all things and that Christ, a human and God, would be the one to whom all things would be summed up in. And we know that Adam was to be the one who would be the perfect display of God's image to all of creation, and he wasn't. And Christ comes as the perfect Adam. And he says, I will be that. And we know that God's intention has always been that he would work through human agents to display what he is like to the world. And he would exercise his dominion over the world through humanity. And we know that humanity did not do it, but there is a human that did, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the one human right now in heaven that perfectly mediates before the Father on our behalf. And it is through him that God is accomplishing his purposes in humanity. And if we have only the means of the gospel in our mind that it's God's design that he would work through Christ to save us, but we don't have the purpose of the gospel in front of us, then what we become is an individualistic church. And my shoe is untied. I'm going to trip, so let me tie this a sec. That we, we become primarily about getting people to respond or pray a prayer. In fact, that is even a problem, isn't it? Because if all we do is try to get people to somehow make a decision for Jesus as though he needs us to vote for him. He doesn't. He is Lord and King. It's not going to change. Your vote doesn't change who he is and your acceptance of him does not change who he is. And I want you to understand this morning if our view is that this is primarily about us being saved and that's where it ends. We have missed the whole point. Because it is not primarily about us being a saved. In fact, Jesus says, anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We are being saved for his sake, for his glory, for his work, for his purposes. That's why we are being saved. See, the ultimate plan of God is that he would call a people to himself, do the work to transform them in the image of God, again, restore them back to what he intended them to be, so that Christ might be glorified in all things, especially in his church. And the church becomes the beginning and the foretaste of the reality that will be forever for all of us to enjoy as Christ is lifted high and glorified in all things. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we understand not only the means of the gospel, but the purpose of the gospel? And then we have to be very careful because Paul says, in the way in which you came to Christ, in Colossians 2, continue to live in him. It's still by grace that we've been saved, and it's by grace that we live. And it's in faith 
that we walk and live in these ways. It's not as though we begin with Jesus and we begin with the gospel and then we go and work really, really hard to do all these good things for God. The gospel is the very thing that continues to transform us so that we might do the things that God intended us to do. And we need, we need to hold on to that tightly because the moment we begin to say it, it was about God and now it's about us, then we've no longer believed the gospel. So we've got to believe it in all things, but we have to believe that God is doing a work in and through his people so that he might receive glory in his church. So that it might be seen that it is truly him who works in us and through us in all things. Now to be clear, I want to make sure we understand before we go any further that the church is not simply a thing we go to. I hope you all know that and believe that. Every week when we gather uh, together um, as a so, so the body that is Soma in Tacoma, and they show up in a, in a building that's a warehouse downtown, um, I, I often say something like this, so glad that you're here. Um, you, you kind of are joining our family today. This is a, a family called Soma. Uh, but I want you to know that um, if you decided to go to church today, I hope that you'll never go to church again. I hope this is the last day you go to church. I hope that you will leave here and you'll realize that you have called to, been called to be the church. And, and, and our desire and our hope is that somehow you would be gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it would, he would transform you and you would go out and you would go be the church all week long. You see, this is the picture that is painted throughout the scriptures that God has always desired for himself, a people that would be set apart for his praises, for his glory, and that it wouldn't be a people that have separated themselves and hidden in a building, but it would be a people who have been sent by God. God has been ascending God from the very beginning. It's in his very nature to create and send, to do the work of the gospel by giving new life to people who couldn't have done it themselves to give life to Adam and Eve who did not create themselves, and then to send them and say, now be for me the ones who will be fruitful and multiply, who will exercise my dominion over the earth. And when they blew it, he said, now I've got to find another way. And he knew it all along, right? We know that God had a plan. And so it wasn't as though it surprised him. But then there's this people he calls to himself, Abraham, and he says, I chose you. See, that's the gospel again. You didn't do it. I chose you, and I will make you. That's the gospel. I will do the work in you. You won't do it. I will make you to be a people, a, a numerous nation, a people of many, many, many numbers, too numerous to be able to count, a nation who will be what? Blessed to be a blessing. You will be for me a people. I will do it for you. I will do it in you. You will be blessed so that the world will be blessed through you, every nation. And everyone will know what I am like because of you. And this continues, right? That same storyline. I mean, you'll see that gospel nugget over and over and over again. Think about the Exodus. I will save you out of your slavery, and then I will give you the law and tell you how to live so that you will be my people and that you will live in such a way that the world might know what I'm like. And David, you know, he does it with him, and he just goes on and on and on. I mean, read the scriptures and read both, the, the means and the purpose, over and over and over again. And so Peter, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Peter Peter is calling us to the gospel. He's calling us to both its means and its purpose. Chapter 1. To God's elect. is verse 1. Strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen, okay, gospel again. You have been chosen. You didn't choose him. He chose you. 
He did the work. You have been chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, He chose you, He sanctifies you, for obedience to Jesus Christ and a sprinkling by His blood. The means of the gospel, God chose you, God sanctifies you, God does it for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. Go over to chapter 2. As you come to him, verse 4, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion a a chosen I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. I hope that when you sing worship songs and you sing about Jesus, you, you just are overwhelmed with gratitude. That he would choose you, that he would love you, that he would give his life for you, that he would redeem you, that he would save you, that you, you know the truth of the gospel, that you and I are both more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe and more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time because of Christ. And so he's precious to you. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected, he's become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You heard a little bit about that last night. They stumble because they disobeyed the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from your sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Paul, or Peter is saying, remember who you are. In fact, this is a thing you'll see throughout all, almost every epistle. This is who God is. This is what he's done in Christ Jesus. This is who you now are because of the work of God in Christ Jesus. And this is now how you should live in light of who you are. It's always in that order. And that's because that's the gospel, right? What God has done and what God is doing and what God is making us to be and what God wants to do through us so that he might receive glory in us. And he says, you are a chosen people. Now I hope as I just rehearse the story again for you briefly, you realize that what Peter's trying to say is, remember the gospel. It was not you who chose him, but him who chose you. It was not you who worked for your salvation, but him who saved you through the work of his son. You are a chosen people. Do you understand what that means? We have been called by God. We can have all kinds of debates about predestination and election and we can get on the wrong point. The point was never that. The point was, why would he choose you? That's the point. You have been called and chosen for a purpose. There is a reason why he is changing you. That's the point. And if we get off on the other one, we become sidetracked and we make the wrong issue the main thing. And anytime we make a good thing, the ultimate thing, we fall into idolatry. And many of us worship our doctrine more than we worship Jesus Christ. And we have not been set free because of our idolatry to go and live the purposes of Christ in our world. You're a chosen people. God has worked in you to do a good work through you so that he might be seen in all things. We have a heritage. 
I hope that you realize if the people that you're leading don't know the story from Genesis to Revelation, they don't understand this, this grand call, this grand narrative that they're a part of, they're never going to get swept up into the fullness of the gospel. It will only be for them one little add-on to their life that they pray to receive Christ and then they live the rest of their life for themselves. And they don't care if the world's going to hell because they're not. Right? And he goes on and he says, you're, you're a chosen people, but you're also a royal priesthood. I hope you all believe in the priesthood of all the saints. I hope that you affirm that in the way that you teach and lead. That you're not the only one who does everything and that you don't somehow tell people that church is what you do on Sunday and then therefore what they do the rest of the week is not qualified. It's not holy. It's not set apart. It's not sanctified. It's, there's nothing good about it. You must get everybody to come to the building. Do you understand what we've done if that's what we tell people? We've just gone backwards. We've gone backwards and said, the Spirit of God does not dwell amongst men anymore or in men. He only dwells in a temple. And we must come to the temple so that people can know God. But the reality is God now dwells in men so that people might see God everywhere around them. The picture that Paul paints in Ephesians is that Christ is the head of his church, the body in which he fills all things in every way. And it's not for him a picture of a building, it's a picture of a city. And a city filled with the presence and good news of Jesus Christ in all things, in every place. And if the people that we're leading don't believe that they've been called to be the priest of God as strangers and aliens in a land that desperately needs Jesus Christ, then all they'll ever believe is that you are the priest of God and it's their job to get that, the people around them to come to you. And you know what we've done if that's what we've, we've become? We have simply bought into the idolatry of Aaron who put up a golden calf and said, look at this is the one who delivers you. Instead of Jesus is the one who delivers us and he is with us. He goes with us by his spirit. And so there is no other savior our church service isn't a savior. Our building isn't a savior. You as the pastor aren't the savior. None of us can save anyone. And we begin to believe that we are. We, we just feed the idolatry that is so contrary to the gospel. And see, when it says you are a royal priesthood, what it's saying is, and you, you can recollect all the imagery of priests, but think of Melchizedek and then think of Jesus who's a priest like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. He was the king and the priest of peace. And this idea of Jesus being our peace is that Jesus is our shalom. He is the one, and the picture of, of Hebrews, or the Hebrew um, culture was that peace is not so much we all get along. Peace is that everything is woven back in the way it was meant to be. It's as if there are many, many threads in, all, in, in this world, and God is taking all of them, saying, I will restore them back to be the humanity I desired them to be. And shalom or peace is the work of God to restore men and women back to what he intended for them in the very beginning. And when we act as priests, we act as mediators who say, would you be restored back to God? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have been saved with this, this reconciliation of God appealing through Christ so that we might be reconciled to God is so that we might be ministers of reconciliation. We are being reconciled to God to be a part of that fabric that displays the image of God once again rightly. And, and that work of God in us to display him well is so that we also might be ministers of reconciliation. 
And that reconciliation is that all people might come back to God through Christ and be woven into this new humanity that Paul describes in Ephesians. He says he's taken the two men and he's making them one. Now I understand that was talking about Gentiles and, and, and Jews at that point. But God says in Christ he is making a new man. He is weaving together a new tapestry, a new humanity, so that there would just be this beautiful diversity of oneness that God is creating that would display what he's like. And so when we hear this idea that we are the, the, the priest, the royal priest, what it means is that every person in your church is the priest in their neighborhood. Okay, I don't know if they see that, if they know that. And most times when I talk to our people like that, they're going, man, I think I want to go to a different church because that's a big deal. Yeah. You are the priest of reconciliation in your neighborhood. You are the people who display the gospel not only by how you are reconciled to your own family, because it starts there, but how you as a family are bringing the gospel to bear in your community so they might be reconciled to God and that you might be the, the, the minister of reconciliation with the message of reconciliation. See, that's the means and the purpose of the gospel. And so what, what, what is in the mind of Peter is he's saying, do you understand that you are strangers and aliens in a world that desperately needs the gospel and needs to be restored to their maker? And whether or not they believe or not is not up to you. In fact, at the end he says, you know, you live such good lives among the pagans that though they see your good deeds, they might glorify God on the day he visits us. They may never believe, but we know that every knee is going to bow, right? And praise God that some of them are going to go, I saw your people living out your gospel and I didn't believe. But I praise you for it. Uh, that's a mystery to me. I don't understand how that's going to work out. But I believe the word tells us that's going to happen. I believe that's true. And see, in order for our people to understand that they are the priests to their community, in some ways we need to take them back to the prophet Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 29. <clears throat> See, when, when Peter is talking, he has history in mind. He has a story in mind. He's not teaching this text, text or this, uh, the, he's not giving these words to the people as though it's isolated from a meta narrative, which is what we tend to do, isn't it? In fact, I, I hope that uh, you would be encouraged to never ever teach the Bible again out of its context. I hope that you would never ever again teach any part of the Bible and not make it about Jesus and his gospel and tie it into the grand picture of what God is doing. Because when people hear that, they are emboldened with the confidence that God has always been about this and God will complete it. And when people have that kind of confidence, they know there's no other story that they could find themselves in at all because there really is only one story and it's the story of God and his gospel. But in, in Jeremiah 29, many of us know that, I mean, let me just ask you, if I just say Jeremiah 29, what verse comes to your mind? Yes, of course. So poorly taken out of context so many times, isn't it? Because chapter 28, the prophet, and, and just to set the context, the people of Israel are in captivity. They're exiles, and God has done it. God has God is in charge of this, okay? Let's never, ever believe that any circumstance we're in, somehow it's outside the control of God. Because if it is, then our gospel is going to fall apart, right? Because then we're going to have to figure out how to get our lives together so he'll accept us instead of believing that all that's going on is his work and we find ourselves underneath his sovereignty and enveloped in his, his activity in some way or another. But in, in chapter 29, um, or chapter 28, the prophet Hananias 
come to the priest and amongst the people and he says, I have a prophecy, I have a word from the Lord. <clears throat> God knows he's going to take you out of here in a couple of years. You're only going to be here for a couple of years. And uh, so don't worry about getting too attached here. Don't, don't get too serious about this community. Don't really be involved in it. And the, you know, the Israelites, are, they know that the, the way it works is that when you go into a culture, you try and get them to marry your people and totally immerse themselves into your, your identity so that the, the people that are amongst you, their whole race will be wiped out. And so that's the fear. If they were to get too involved in Babylon, they might be wiped out as a race. Now, what does that tell you about what they believed about the gospel, about God? That it was up to them, Right? That if they didn't make it work, it wasn't going to happen. That somehow God could not keep his promises. That he would have a people for himself forever. And it's as if this prophet came in and said, God knows that in a couple years you're going to get out of here. So don't take the risk of being too engaged in the culture. Because if you are, you might become too much like the culture. And therefore, we would lose our identity. And therefore, we would no longer be the remnant, the people of God. To be the people through whom a Messiah would eventually come. And Jeremiah says, Amen. If that's what God's going to do, then let him do it. But if not, it will be seen because it will not happen. And then shortly after, he gets a word from God and uh, he, has a, he, he had a wooden yoke on his neck and, and um, as he begins to share this word, Hananiah comes and breaks the yoke and, and then Jeremiah says, I want you to know something. And he takes an iron yoke and he puts it on and he says, this is what God's going to do. This is what God is doing. He says, he's not going to get you out of here. You're going to be here for 70 years. And let me read the passage in chapter 29. This is what the, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like? Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon? Are you kidding me? Do you know how much they hate you? Do you know how wicked they are? Don't you understand the idolatry that's going on in the city? Why would we ever want them to do, to do good? Why would we ever want them to prosper? God says, seek their peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Whoa. Man, that is hard. You got a bunch of people going like, we really want that to be true. We don't really want to have to be amongst these people. We don't really want to have to stay here. We want to get out of this place. That's our heart's desire. And so we are encouraging them to dream these dreams and tell us what our itching ears want to hear. Right? Someone else says that's going to come a day when that happens amongst us. He says, don't encourage them. Don't listen to, the, to them. They are prophesying lies to you in my name, and I've not sent them, declares the Lord. And then God says what he's about to do. And then we know the famous verse. <laughs> but we, we read it out of context, don't we? Because how many times have you heard someone say, I, I'm just, I just can't wait. Jesus is going to come any day. So let's just be ready for his coming. And therefore, let's not care one bit about the place we live in. Because it's all going to burn anyway, right? 
Why should we care about the environment? It will all burn. Why should we care about our neighbors? They're going to hell. I, I just want Jesus to come back soon. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray Jesus come soon. But I also know that the scriptures tell us that we can speed the day of his arrival by doing the work he called us to do. See, he's got a job that he's called his church to be about. And for some reason, in the grand mystery of God, God is going to make it happen through his church. And, and it's not dependent on us, it's dependent on him, but he will do it through us. And that's the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, Paul says that the church in Ephesians, he says, you are the manifold wisdom of God, the display of what God is like to the heavenly realms, and you are to the earthly realm a picture of God's future hope that he's going to, to restore us all to. And so what, what I hear often is that we, we, if we're not careful, we spend more time talking about the return of Christ and less time getting ready for the work he called us to do before he returns. And he called us to be priests. He called us to live in exile amongst the people who desperately need the good news of Jesus Christ. See, the goal wasn't your personal salvation. The goal is his glory. And his, he is most glorified when we are living lives consumed with this gospel on purpose for his sake. And so if you are listening to the, the prophets or the diviners who are telling you don't worry about the culture you live in or the city you live in or the neighbor you live in because you're going to be out of here soon and that's all going to be destroyed. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. It's false prophecy. I hope that you hear that. I hope that you know that. I hope that you believe that. I hope that you believe that you have put in, been put in the place that you live and that people, every person in your church lives where they live because God has designated a time and a place for which men would exist and live. And that the very neighborhood they live in is not a mistake. It's because God wants a priest in that neighborhood. He wants someone who would display the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people they live with. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are the ministers of reconciliation where you live. And then he goes on, he says, you're a holy nation. And it, many of you know, Jesus at one point says to his disciples, you're a city on a hill. And what he's fundamentally saying is, you are an ultimate city within a city. You are a picture of what it looks like to live under the reign and rule of Christ in such a way that others might know a bit of the foretaste of what it will be like forever. That's why Jesus says, our Father... Pray like this, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In heaven as it is in heaven. No, on earth as it is in heaven. See, we are the, the nation, the holy nation of God. We are a people of God set apart. That's what holy means. Set apart by him for his purposes to display what it looks like to live a life fully submitted to the rule and reign of Christ. To, see, to show what it looks like to live a life that fully embraces the gospel in all things. In all things. And Jesus says you are a city on a hill. You will be a people that display what it's like to have the rule and reign of Christ be about everything you do and everything you do will be under his rule and reign and everything you do will declare his gospel. See, the interesting thing about Jesus, Jesus didn't just come and preach the gospel with words. Jesus demonstrated the gospel. The incarnation says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
The picture of the gospel is not just someone who proclaims, but someone who demonstrates the gospel in all of life. And as we are being transformed in the image of Christ, we become a display of what the gospel looks like to our community. And every person that's a part of your church is not to be a part of your church and only a display of the gospel when they gather. They are to be the display of the gospel in everything. In their jobs, in the marketplace, in the schools, in their neighborhood. They are the holy nation of God put in a place so that people might know what it looks like to see the rule and reign of Christ be demonstrated as the gospel is worked out in your community. That's a beautiful picture. I mean, think about it. We are called into that. When I, when I talk, we, one of the things we do in our community is we celebrate like crazy. And we probably are known as the party, most party-going party church and party-creating church in our city. Why wouldn't we be? We are, I mean, Jesus, one of the pictures he gives us, it's going to be a banquet. It's a big party. Invite everybody in. Wouldn't we want to display that now? Because it's already true, right? We, we have been saved, and we are being transformed, and we do know him and all his goodness, and we have all the inheritance of Christ. Why wouldn't we throw the biggest parties around? What if every person in your church knew that it was their job to live in such a way in their community that they would get to display the glory of God, the gospel of God, by throwing the best parties for their block? Just an idea. What's a requirement of an elder? That they be hospitable, right? And they have a good reputation with outsiders. I fundamentally believe that every one of the requirements of the elders are there because the people of God are all supposed to be doing it. And the elders are supposed to be leading the way. See, we get, we get in trouble if we go, you know, the elders are supposed to do all this and we just sit around and watch them. No, God has given some to the church for what? The equipping of the saints. Ephesians 4. Not so that they would go, way to go, pastor, or way to go, elder. In fact, the problem is, I know that most elders in churches are already disqualified because they don't have a good reputation with outsiders because outsiders don't even know them, right? They never have them in their house. They never throw the parties. They're not hospitable. But to be an elder in the church means you have to be the, the edge of the movement of God in a community that says we are the most hospitable people on the planet because that's the gospel, right? The gospel is we give from what we've received, not something we have. And when we give, we give to people who don't deserve because that's what Jesus did with us. And we give them not out of any merit of their own, but simply because God first loved us. And that's it. And we do it in such a way that it's extravagant, Right? That it, that it, because that's what God's grace is. It's extravagant. I, I often talk to our, our church and I say, you know, how many of you guys tip well? And when I used to uh, be a part of a, a big church in Chicago and they would have conferences quite often that people would come to. And every single time we had a conference, we had to go around to all the restaurants and apologize on behalf of the church because they tip so poorly. Christians are the most non generous, cheap people on the planet. It's true. The gospel hasn't gripped us, has it? Because if the, if the gospel gripped us, we would be the most generous people on the planet. Because consider him who was rich and in his, who became poor. And in his poverty, we became rich. So that what? We might be blessed to be a blessing. Because we own it all. <laughs> I mean, do you believe that? Do you truly believe that all of the inheritance of Jesus Christ is ours? And we're never going to have a day when we're in need, not in a need that God doesn't know and will provide. And so why wouldn't we be the most generous people on the planet? 
Why are we so held to the idolatry of love for money? Because the gospel has not gripped us in that area. That's why. And when it does, it changes the way we live. And I will say to people, and so we say this at our church all the time, one of the best demonstrations of the gospel to the waitress or waiter in the, in the restaurant you go to regularly is that you will tip them beyond what they deserve. I had a conversation with some people in Romania just a, a couple weeks ago. I was there training some church planners, and I sat down with this guy, and he, I said, tell me a little bit about what your church is doing to get involved in its community and be the priesthood to the people that you're with. And he said, well, we aren't really doing much, but we are, you know, we do go to a restaurant. Did this fall down? It's good. We do go to a restaurant every week together as Christians. And I said, okay, what do you do there? And he said, well, we eat and we talk, and we make sure we don't tip them well because, man, their service is terrible. We need to let them know that. I'm going like, okay, see, what you are is you are full of truth, but you aren't full of grace and truth. See, in the gospel, is fullness of grace and truth. Amen. It's you don't deserve it, I know it, and I'm giving it to you anyway. And I said, you know what? Um, in fact, when he said that, he said, you know, she doesn't deserve it. I went, huh. So what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Did he pay you what you deserved? And I didn't do that to make him feel guilty. I did it because I want him to be so enraptured with affection for Jesus and thanksgiving. Because see, someone who's not generous is unthankful. That's how it works. And we haven't been gripped with the generosity of our Lord. And so I want the gospel to come to bear in that moment. And I said to him, do you believe the gospel? And he said, yeah. And I said, do you believe that, the, that he gave you what you didn't deserve? He gave you grace. And he said, yes. And I said, so why wouldn't you tip better? And he said, well, because if I do, then she'll be affirmed in her evil behavior. Hmm. I said, it's interesting. What led us to repentance? God's kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe it's the power of God to transform all who believe, to change them? Do you believe it? That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it because it really does change people. And when I live out the gospel, it affects people. It does. It's the power of God. And when I live out a generous life to people who don't deserve it, do I believe that in that place God might through us in the power of Jesus begin to enter into that world as we incarnate the gospel in form that people might begin to understand and even not make sense of? And might it just change that waitress? Might she go like, I don't get these people. I treat them horrible every week and they keep over-tipping me. Why do they do that? What is up with you people? Is that possible? You know, when we hear the scripture, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. I think that assumes people are asking a question. Doesn't it? But I, know, I want you to know, most people aren't asking us questions because we're not living the gospel. It isn't foolishness to them. It isn't profound. It isn't unfathomable. They, they don't need Jesus to explain it. Because what they see in our lives isn't Jesus. They see humans. They don't see people transformed by the power of gospel who live it out in all of life in such a way that the people around them go, it makes no sense to me at all. Why do you do this? Why do you live the way you do? And see, that's why the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing because they don't understand 
the work of, the, of, of Jesus Christ in us to transform us. And when we live out a transformed life, what we are doing is we're only declaring the gospel that much better. So you are a holy nation. You're an alternative people. You are a city on a hill. Now what if, what if we began to believe that the church is not the people only gathered, but it's the people sent out on mission to declare and demonstrate the gospel in all things. What if we believe that? What would that lead us to begin to do? Well, in our community, we've realized that we can't just talk about it. Although, I believe that when you preach the gospel and you, you call people to it like this, something happens inside of them. It's profound. You know, in churches that, that believe that what they're supposed to do is, is uh, teach a really good message and give three application principles so people will go live differently the next week. It's because they don't believe the gospel, right? They believe they have to tell people what to do instead of believing they can be changed on the spot by the gospel preaching. And then when they're changed on the spot, then we just explain to them how they can go live out what just happened to them, right? That's profoundly different than go live a different life, but you aren't being changed, and what we end up with is a bunch of anemic Christians or we end up with a bunch of works-based people who go out and work harder to try and be the church but they're not being transformed by the power of the gospel to even go and be transformed in a culture. Okay? But I, I, we, as we wrestled this, we, we believe we, can't, we have to preach the gospel and as it transforms, we need to help give them ways in which they can begin to live it out in tangible form in their community. And I'm just going to give you six things that we are discovering. You, um, I think they're transferable. Um, I hope that already you got gripped by the gospel, so I'm not giving you a to-do list. Okay, this is my, always my, tend- my hesitancy. I almost want to not go here, because I, I trust the Spirit of God to work in your hearts, but I'm going to go there trusting that the Spirit of God is working in your hearts. Okay? Um, the first thing for us is that we realize that we are a story-formed people, and so one of the rhythms is that we are ongoing, formed people by a story. And what I mean by that is twofold, that we are constantly being transformed and renewed as we understand our place in the story of God and his gospel work. But we also are a part of a context. We're in a culture. And we need to know the story of the people that we're with. Paul could never go to the places he went and preach the gospel effectively unless he knew the idols of their culture. Unless he knew what it was they were trusting in other than Jesus Christ. And so we have to know the story of the culture we live in. In fact, I would just ask you as a pastor first or a leader in your church, do you know the story of all the people on your block? Do you know their stories? Because if you don't, how will you ever preach the gospel to them? See, because the gospel is not a bunch of propositions. In fact, look at through the scripture. It, the gospel is proclaimed in many, maybe 30 or 40 different ways as it's recorded in scripture. I think there might even be more than that in terms of proclamation, whether it's through Jesus or Paul or Peter or, or uh, Philip. Many different ways. And each way was contextualized. The gospel message never changed. But they, they were listening to the story of their culture, and Paul shows up at the Areopagus, and he says, and we know he's been there long enough because he's been listening, he's been paying attention. And he says, I see that you have this God-fearing thing in you. Uh, you have a lot of gods. You have one. This statue erected to the unknown God. Can I tell you about that God? And he begins to rehearse the story for them. And he tells them about Jesus. But it's because he knew their story. See, and we are, we are giving people answers to questions they're not asking. You cannot be a people who display the gospel as the ministers of reconciliation unless you know where people are broken. If you, unless you know what their idols are. 
If you don't know their idols, how are you going to bring the gospel to bear on their idolatry? So you're going to have to know their story because you're going to discover their idols when you know their story. And you're going to have to help the people in your congregation get into their community and know the story of the people in their community. If they don't know who they live with, they will not be good priests. So this is where the Catholics got it right. The ones that at least they believed were priests knew the people. You know, like every mafia person would go to a priest and that priest knew everything. Every person that person was killing, who they were about to go kill. I mean, it's pretty sick, but the priests knew their stories, you know? That's not because they made that up. It's because they did follow Jesus on that one. Jesus knows us, doesn't he? See, the gospel is that he completely knows us and he still loves us. So if you don't know the people in your community, how can you say you love them? I say this to our people all the time. If you don't have a friend who doesn't know Jesus, then you're not living the gospel. Because the gospel is not that you've been saved for your sake, but you've been saved for his sake. And that others around you might be loved because you were first loved. And the love that you have for them would not be based upon their merit or even the facade they put up in the front of their house. It would be because you got to know them, and when you got to know them, you still love them. And see, all of us know the grace of that. Those of us who are married, we know that the, the beautiful grace of marriage is the longer that you live with the other person, you forget they're there. And, the, and, and then you just be, you become yourself. And then if that person loves you, even though you're yourself, you get to experience the gospel from your spouse. And why does not our community get to experience that? See, not only must we be story form, but we've learned that then we have to be people who who are blessed to be a blessing. This is a part of the Abrahamic covenant, that you've been blessed and now you are going to be a blessing to others. But how are you going to know how to bless the people in your community if you don't know their story? And once you know their story, will you then be the distributor of grace to your community? Will you bring to them the thing they need? In, In other words, will you see what's broken in your community and be like Christ, not be Christ, but be like Christ, who bore up the weight of sin on behalf of others who couldn't bear it? Is it possible that we could look around in the places we live and go, what is broken? What is a declaration of sin in my community? And how can I bring the gospel of grace to that brokenness? I, I know that Imago Day Community Church that Rick's going to be sharing tonight a little bit about their church, um, they do a thing called sacred space and they just converge on an area in their community that ne- it's so broken it needs to see the gospel of, of, of grace be demonstrated in very tangible forms. What if every one of the people in our church believed that they were the priests of God who knew the story of everyone in their community and it was their job because they were the recipients of grace to be the, dis- the d- display and, and the demonstration and the, the givers of grace to those around them. One of the other uh, rhythms that we've discovered that displays the gospel is we must listen. See, most of us want to talk a lot. Like me right now. Most of us preachers especially talk way too much. And see, we have said, you know, prayer is not, we're not trying to get our people to be prayers because I believe that if you are on mission, you will have to pray. I won't have to get anybody to pray, but I know that they will never get on mission unless they listen to God. And they will never do what he says unless they start listening. And so we're trying to train our people, be listeners, because see, listeners are declaring, when you listen, you're declaring to God, I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing here. I need you. 
And God gives grace to the humble, right? But he opposes the proud. That's the gospel, right? Us acknowledging that we can't do this, that we're not that smart. And, and the church, I'll just tell you honestly, maybe may, one of the biggest things I think the church's, church lacks is wisdom. Because we depend on our knowledge. We depend on our, our schooling, our education. We depend on our abilities. But we don't depend on God. And God's the only one who gives wisdom. And he says that when you ask of it, he will give it generously. And why are we just not going, God, I don't have a clue what to do in my neighborhood. I don't know these people. I don't know what you want to do. I don't know how your gospel is going to come to bear. Would you tell me what to do today? Jesus himself said, I don't do anything about, apart from the Father. I do nothing on my own. So if we learn how to enter into the rhythm of listening, not just to God, but then listen to our culture, listen to our neighbors say, they probably have something to say, like Jesus with the Samaritan woman. He didn't go and say, I got something to give you. He said, will you give me water? And that's humility, see? When we make ourselves put in a place where we need. And you need to listen. And your people need to listen to the people around them. See, this is part of what Jeremiah was saying. God wants you to live amongst them. He wants you to plant gardens. He wants you to build houses. He wants you to marry your kids. He wants you to make this your home. And he wants you to get to know these people. You're not getting out of here soon. We may not be getting out of here for a long time. One of the other rhythms that we have discovered, I already shared a little bit, is that we, are, we have to be the people who celebrate. There's a reason for us throwing great parties. And I have found in our own community, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it in just a sec, but I have found in our community that everybody wants to have a party, but nobody wants to throw the party. And it's really interesting how this all works because you... As soon as you throw a party, you know, only a few show up because they're really afraid of admitting that they knew they should have threw, thrown it themselves because they've been there for a long time and they never did. And this is, at least this is what happened in my community. The first time we started throwing parties, and we just did a barbecue every single Friday night in our community at, at one of our homes. And, and then we, uh, as a church, we don't meet once, once a month in a building. Uh, the first Sunday ever, every month we go out and we throw breakfast parties for our whole community because uh, why would we try to get a bunch of people who don't want to go to church to come to our building? Why don't we just bring the church to them? That's kind of our thinking. So as soon as we started doing this, I had people come to me and go, we've been here for 20 years, and we've never done this. It's about time somebody did this. Well, isn't that kind of how it works with Jesus? We've been on the planet for thousands of years. It's about time somebody became the Messiah. That's what God, God said. In the fullness of time, he sent his son. There's a part of, people are longing for the grace and truth of the gospel. And it gets displayed, not just in your words, but in your celebration, in your party. Let's throw parties. And we actually have people who train people in hospitality because people don't know how to throw parties in the church. And that's sad. It really is. We should throw the best parties there are. The best food, the best drink. The best hospitality you could ever imagine. We ought to be the declarers of the gospel through parties. Okay? Now, see, if your people hear this, they're going to go, oh, so the gospel applies to everything. Even the parties I throw. Even my sex life. Even my money and how I use it. It's everything. Because we're ministers of reconciliation in all things. The gospel comes to bear. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Another rhythm for us is that we eat and therefore we have to exercise a lot because we eat a lot. And we tell our people, you do all eat, right? 
Do you eat alone or do you eat with people? Because what do you do when you sit down at a meal? You declare the gospel, right? You say, I, the reason I'm at the table is because I have a need. And I can't take care of that need by myself. That's why part of the Lord's prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. And he gave it to us. So when I sit at a table, I say, I'm in need and God met my need, not because I deserve it, but because he is gracious. And we do that without saying it, just so you know. That's why people meet around meals. There's something profound going on in a meal that is the gospel. And if we can help our people understand that, and then they can be the ones who, who give the meals, then they can understand that there's a reason why Jesus told us to remember him over a meal. Okay? The Passover meal was God's way of saying, remember me as the Savior. Remember my gospel. Remember that I am the only one who delivers. I am the only one who meets your need. I am the only one who can bring grace to people who don't deserve it like this. And so we, I, we encourage our people, eat with people. Don't eat alone. Have meals with people in your community. Create the meals. Create the opportunities. And remember Jesus over the meal. And we've had to train our people. Sometimes you've got to be really careful. Because if you bring a bunch of non-Christians to your home and you have a meal and you start off and say, okay, let's pray. Why are you praying? Well, this has been a learning thing for us. A lot of times people are praying because we want to declare our faith out loud amongst the people who don't have a faith. I'm not sure we need to pray out loud. I think it's possible that you could be praying the whole time. And what we tend to do is we communicate a, a, a what can be a false righteousness to people. Man, we have an older couple that just joined our community and they said we were doing this meal and we asked some of the young guys here, should we pray before the meal? And they all went, no! And they, they were like, okay, um, that's new. And um, they're in their 60s, been doing ministry, and they're a beautiful couple. And so I talked to him, he said, I realized when they said that, what was going on in me, I wanted to pray to declare to them who I am. And it was about me, not about them. And what they, didn't, they needed, they didn't need me to pray, they needed me to listen to them and be in prayer. See, I'm not saying don't pray, I'm saying we should be praying without ceasing. But why would you pray with a bunch of non-believers? Ask yourself that question. Now the beauty is, sometimes God brings children along, like my son, the other day my wife had a friend over at our house, a non-believing woman, they were hanging out, and um, they were going to eat lunch, and Caleb looks at my wife, he's two and a half, and he says, can I pray? And um, she's like, sure, and he goes, and he speaks in tongues when he prays, because he can't understand things he says. He's like, in Jesus' name, amen, you know? And so, uh, and she goes, how cute. And God used that moment to bring grace to her in a new way, but we would never just say, we're going to pray and force you into something that will become idolatry for her later. Because we'll be telling her, there's, we're going to try and get you to do the things of faith when you have no faith. We've got to be careful about that. So we eat together. We also um, rest. We call it recreate. You know, there's a 6-1 rhythm in the creation of the world. God built it. Six, year, six days and then one day of rest. It's built in the very soil. You'll, you, if any of you are gardeners or farmers, you know You've got to give your land rest. And so we've said, as a people, we've got to display the gospel by resting. Because what happens when you Sabbath? You say that even though I'm not working today, God will still take care of things. So we say, you've got to rest. And you've got to, you've got to create. You've got to create and you've got to rest. You've got to create and you've got to rest. And that's the rhythm of life. But the gospel says you rest first and then you create, see? Because you don't start with your works, you start with what God has done, and therefore you rest in what he's done. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says it's a, a continual rest, a perpetual rest, an eternal rest. But then because you can rest, you can create beauty for his sake. 
And we say to our church regularly, what are we doing to create such profound beauty in our community that it displays a God who is at work amongst us, who is the creator of the universe and designed everything? How do we display that gospel through our creation? So therefore, hard work becomes part of the gospel. You can start to tell your people when they go to work, they are proclaiming the gospel in the way they work. And see, so many of the people in your church, they only think that the full-time ministers are the pastors, but they're the full-time ministers who just get a paycheck from somebody else, but it's still from God. And if you can help them understand, you are the priest in your workplace, and you bring the gospel to bear in the way in which you do work, because you do it so profoundly different than anyone else, you will display the gospel. And you know what every person needs is they need to know what it looks like to be a Christian in their field. In other words, if you've got a doctor that's in your church, that doctor needs to demonstrate what it looks like to display the gospel so that any other doctor that would be asking, what would it look like if I knew Jesus Christ personally, they would say, I look at that doctor and that's what me as a doctor would look like with Christ as king. Okay? And that's how it is, that's just how it is for teachers, for garbage men, for mothers, for fathers, for families, for communities. We are to be in all places a demonstration of what it would look like to people if they were being saved. Okay? Now I want to finish with a little bit of the story of what's happened in my community, and I hope it will encourage you. Um, almost everyone in my neighborhood, uh, in my block, doesn't know Jesus. Um, they know messed up pictures of Jesus, and that's why they hate the church. Um, they know an idolatrous version of Jesus, and therefore I think God has protected them, actually. In fact, I'm becoming more convinced that the church, because it doesn't believe the gospel and has many other functional saviors other than Jesus that it trusts in, that God is protecting people from her at this point because of our idolatry. In my neighborhood, I have many people who have been really deeply hurt by the church, others who want nothing to do with it. I even have a, 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 the principal of the local high school on their door. His wife works at a tattoo shop. On their door, um, it says... We respect your right to pursue whatever God slash goddess you want. Please respect ours. No solicitation. And uh, the amazing thing is, is anytime I knock on their door, they open the door and they greet me with a hug. And uh, that's because they're experiencing something very different than they've ever experienced before. And I don't say that to give credit to myself. I say that because God is transforming me and changing me. And uh, right across the street from me is a, a couple, Amy and Tolly. Amy is a, a high school teacher at the same high school that this man is a principal at. Her husband is a professor at Washington State University's extension campus where we live. Uh, he grew up Lutheran. She grew up Catholic. They want nothing to do with religion. want nothing to do with the church. Right next to them is uh, across the street, this direction from me, is a guy who is a professor at a seminary, and he is the one almost everybody in my community hates. And I say that with deep regret and love for him, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what God's doing there. Because he's a man who has a no parking sign in front of his house, or a parking permit only, and um, he parks right next to it, but there's still another uh, several rooms for, room for like three or four more cars, and anytime someone parks there, he goes out and puts glue on their windshield, puts a piece of paper that says, can't you read, and there's all kinds of fun little encouraging words after that, and then he, he puts glue on top of that, and so many of my friends have parked there not knowing it was a, a permit only because there's a tree that hangs in front of the sign, and, uh, and they come out to this sign. And most of the neighbors know that he proclaims to be a Christian. And so when I sit with them, I have to help them understand that's not what Christ does. Okay? 
Next to me, next to my wife and I is a couple that were hippies. They have two kids, girls. One has red, pink hair, one has white hair. Uh, one goes to Bell, uh, Western Washington University. Um, then on the other side of me is a woman whose husband died 14 years ago of cancer, and she's been a recluse in her house for all 14 years. She will come out and sit in her van and read and spend her life in her van and in her house, and then she'll drive to get what she needs, but she is completely disconnected from our community. Her house is falling apart. Her yard is overgrown. There's two cars buried in the backyard that she remembers as the ones that she dated her husband in, so she can't get rid of them. Next to... Uh, just, uh, I'm not going to give you all our neighbors, but just some that are pertinent. Right around the corner is uh, Mike and, or Jim and Carrie. Um, he, one of them goes to University of Washington, the other goes to Washington State, or they went to and graduated from. So they, they, are, they need reconciliation in their home. Um, they're a wonderful couple. And um, <clears throat> so we're getting to know them. So we had a breakfast club two weeks ago, uh, a week ago this past Sunday, and um, had them over. And I had some, some people from SOMO said, can we come to it? And they called me and I said, you may only come if you will listen and keep your mouth shut. I, I mean that. I mean, we, we have got to be quiet. And uh, they're a young couple, and they're a wonderful couple, and I said, do not talk about Soma. Do not talk about what you believe. Just listen. Just listen. And they called me back and said, you know, maybe we shouldn't come. <laughs> I said, why wouldn't you come? Well, because it sounds like you don't want us. I said, no, I just don't want any Christians who are going to ruin the ministry of reconciliation on my block. I've worked way too hard. This has been a couple of years of building trust and getting to know their stories. And if you come in and you make it about you and you dehumanize them by making them a project, then I don't want you around them and I'm going to protect you because you're wolves. And that's what good shepherds do. They protect people from the wolves. That's what priests do. They stand in the gap. And we shouldn't let that happen any longer. We've got to stand against that. It's an, it's an face. It's an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they came. <laughs> and they didn't say hardly anything, which was great. Yeah, they just asked questions. And um, throughout the time together, um, we were sitting down eating and talking and listening. And at one point, everybody started talking about my neighbor who puts the things on their windshields. And, um, and I mean, he's like... He's bigger than life. He is a monster in their mind, by the way. And that's what happens, by the way. What the enemy loves to come in and take the little bit of junk that we have, and he magnifies it to, big, to make you a monster. So he's a monster. They always talk about us. He's a, he's a train killer. That's what they said. <laughs> like, gosh, man, this is crazy. And um, I know him. And so I, I, as they were talking about him, and I said, you know what? We had, we had him over for dinner Friday night. And all of a sudden it was like, hmm. As, as if the room changed color. It's like, you know, and you know how time stops? And you, I felt it. And they all looked at me, and they're like, you're kidding me. You invited the enemy in. Why would you ever do that? You know, that's what they're thinking. And um, I said, you know what? You would be surprised. He is a great guy. Said so he brought my wife a dozen roses. He brought me a nice bottle of wine. We talked about how we enjoy wine. He said he's got a, a bottle he saved for 20 years he would love to introduce me to and have together. And I said, I said, this guy is, a, is a really a nice guy, actually. I said, I think there's just a part of his life right now that's a little broken. And I think he really likes justice. And he's gone a little too far with that. Now, I didn't use any gospel language, you know? I'm using language they get, but that is gospel, right? That's truth without grace. That's what that is. And that's what he's doing. 
He's not, being, he's not fully embracing the gospel. And as they listened to me, they were like, what are you doing? And I said, one day, he's going to be here eating with us. And I trust that he'll be asking you to forgive him for what he's done. Now, I just preached the gospel, didn't I? Now, I didn't use four spiritual laws. I didn't throw a booklet in their face. I, I talked to them about grace and truth. I talked to them about the possibility of reconciliation. I talked to them about a power that's bigger because they're all sitting there thinking, and you know it, that would take God, right? So all I've done is set them up so that when it happens, they will begin to believe that God can do the miraculous in their own life. Now the other thing that I did when I did that is I showed them that there's an advocate for them when they are the bad person. Because you know what's happening in everyone's mind when I blow it in the neighborhood and everyone's talking about me, Jeff's going to be my advocate, right? It's not because I'm great, it's because Jesus is our advocate. And so we become advocates for those who don't deserve grace. And we give it to them anyway. And so then as we're talking, um, Amy, the teacher, says, she's been telling me about this kid named Jarrell that's in her class and how some things are breaking free in him. And he, he's, he's a guy who's failed all his classes. His parents, both of them, are in prison. And there's just pretty much no hope in their mind for him. But she believes. She has this ounce that I think is from God. That there's an image in everyone that's the image of God. And something can be restored. Now she doesn't know what's going to happen through Christ. But as we've talked, I said, I, I, you know, I believe with you that something can happen to change him. And he just uh, found that he's a poet. And he went to a stage competition. And all of a sudden he's like, gosh, I don't have any clothes. So they helped him buy new clothes. And we're helping her think through how to live out the gospel without using the language of the gospel yet. It's really beautiful. So she sits down in this, in, while we're eating, and she says, Jeff, I want to tell you, Jarrell came into class the other day, and he said, he said, uh, uh, um, teacher, I, I think he called her Miss, you know, I can't even say her last name half the time, Janie, what is it? Level, level, level. <laughs> so um, I know ours, Amy. And um, he, said, he comes in, and he says, Someone, my uncle just told me that I'm going to hell for not honoring my parents who are in prison. And he says, is that true? He's got a Bible in his hand, by the way. So she's like, well, I would think it'd be awfully hard to honor your parents because they're in prison. I get that. Um, but I don't know. But I do know somebody who does know. And he's really cool. He's a pastor, but he's not like a normal pastor. That's what, I hear that all the time. And, uh, and, and he's white, though. Is that okay? And they're like, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, he's, he's like, that's cool. And she, she, so she comes to me. She says, Jeff, would you be willing to meet with him and tell him about what the Bible says about these things? I said, um, I don't know. Hmm. Of course. You know, of course I would. And I said, well, how would I do this? She goes, you can come right into my classroom. I said, you're kidding. She goes, no, I've already talked to the principal, guy down the street. And uh, we both believe that the only thing that's going to change him is a supernatural breakthrough. That he's going to have to have a spiritual awakening. Those are her words. And I'm going like, how many of you have ever been invited into a public school to preach the gospel? Yeah, and I'm just telling you, where I live, it is liberal. This is not something that happens. So I'm sitting there thinking, not only did I just see the gospel happen, because God's at work doing this, but I also get to be a part of her getting to experience the work of the gospel herself. And my hope is that Jarrell is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's going to lead her to Christ. Not because he used words, but because his life got changed, and she watched it. So then we're sitting there, and this old woman, Nicole, uh, Nicole, 
uh, Nikki, who lives next to us, the recluse, who we've fixed her van and we've really loved on her and she kind of now is a part of our family and sees our kids as like her grandkids. She's sitting there and she goes, I can't believe it. I can't believe that I've been sitting in my house for 14 years feeling sorry for myself. Here's a guy who his parents are in prison and I have a van and we were talking about how he doesn't have a ride to and from. She goes, I could give him a ride. But I've been sitting here feeling sorry for myself for 14 years and Jeff and Janie reached down into my pit. That's what she said. Reached down into my pit and they, would, they wouldn't let me stay there. And they kept calling me out of it. And they were my cheerleaders and they've spoken into me this possibility that something could be different. And she said, I'm sitting here with all of you for the first time in 14 years. I am in a community. And I'm just going like, I, she is preaching the gospel. She, it wasn't her, it was somebody else who reached in. Now, we got to help her understand it wasn't us, it was Jesus. And she, we talked to her about Jesus all the time, so we're pretty open about that. She doesn't know how to articulate that yet, of course. But she knows something profound is happening. And she said, Jarrell needs that. He needs us to be the cheerleaders in his life who won't let him stay in the pit. And we got to speak into his life what he could become. And I want to help with that. I'm just sitting there thinking, going, this is amazing. I've got, this group is being a better priesthood than some of the church right now. And they don't yet know it's because Jesus is starting to break into their world. And that's the beauty of it. And then Jim, Jim and Carrie, he's a part of a rotary and he wants me to be a part of the rotary club now because I'm also a businessman in our city. And uh, talking to him, I said, you know, her, Nikki's yard is really a mess. And the other guys are listening. And uh, said, would you guys be interested in if I could pull you all together, fixing up her house and cleaning up her yard? And they're like, we're on it. You call us, we'll be there. And I tell Nikki, I said, Nikki, I want you to know all the guys here. And a few months ago when I would have said this, she would have said no. I said, all the guys here are ready to come and, and fix your house. And she starts to cry. And she says, I can't believe it. I can't believe that this is happening to me. And you know, about four months ago, she wouldn't even let us help her fix her van because, see, the gospel hadn't broken in yet enough to help her be humble. But now she's experiencing the beauty of humility and acknowledging her need and experiencing the grace of God come in and break into that place and give her hope. And that hope is not there because we're good people. That hope is there because Jesus has saved us for his purposes. And he wants the world to know that he is not just simply about us getting to heaven, but about us living in such a way that heaven gets to be tasted on the earth before he comes. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that you have given me the privilege of being gripped by you and that your gospel is still changing me. And I just acknowledge, Father, before you that I am a man who needs desperately your grace all the time. And I thank you that you do, don't give up on me. So grateful that in my foolishness, you bring wisdom. And in my weakness, you bring your power. Father, I pray for my neighborhood. I pray that there would be a church there someday. Not just but the one in my house, but that the whole neighborhood would be your church. Father, I pray that for all the neighborhoods that are represented in this room, and for every city, God, I pray that you would help us to be the alternative city so that your gospel would be declared not just from our pulpits, but in the streets, in the homes, in the business places, and that in all things you might be glorified and praised. And Father, I pray for this room that the people here would be so gripped by your gospel that they realize that you did not save them so that they would be about themselves and then just fall back into idolatry. But you saved them for your sake 
and for your purposes. And God, we pray that Jesus, because of that, would be lifted high, not only in the gathering of your church, but in the scattering of your church. And that every city that's represented in this room would know the God who saves because of that. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen.